While I was pulling apart Louis Le Prince's US patent, I lost track of something. I lost track of two clauses. And this episode is about those clauses and how I lost track of them, which in itself might give us the answer to a puzzle. So let's take a quick look. The Shadow Traps, episode 34. There is something I should add. Do you have the stomach for another recap of the patent process? It's the last one. I'll try and describe what we've seen happen so far. Then I'll mention something that I've missed. Then I'll try and explain why I think I missed it. And then I'll try and use that to explain why there was no conspiracy by the patent office to thwart Le Prince's later cameras, as some people have suspected. To recap, briefly and crudely and tediously, Le Prince had a design ready to be patented. It was a multi-lens camera which could be run in reverse to become a projector. It also included another viewing device with two spinning discs with images on. The patent office looked at Le Prince's application and said, no, you're trying to patent two things, something that captures images and something or things that plays back images. You can't have two inventions in one patent. Take out everything to do with the playing back of images. Le Prince took out the spinning disc viewer, but not the main projector, hoping, I think, that he might get away with that. Unfortunately, the gamble didn't work, and the patent office this time, to make sure Le Prince conformed to their instructions, listed the exact claims to be taken out or changed. In order to prevent Le Prince claiming for any kind of deliverer, Unfortunately, the gamble didn't work, and the patent office, to make sure Le Prince conformed to their instructions, listed the exact claims to be taken out or changed in order to prevent the inclusion of any kind of deliverer for patent protection. Le Prince, in reaction to this, made amendments to the patent specifications, but he didn't follow the patent office's very specific instructions. Instead, he left in the projection designs, but at the same time, he stated that he was no longer claiming any patent protection for them because he would make the deliverer, the projector, the subject of a separate patent. And this, I think, was a way of sidestepping the objection that two inventions were being claimed for. So, he had a design for a camera and a design for the main projector, but was just claiming for the camera at this point. 
The second thing he did was to reword his descriptions of the machine in order to emphasize the singular nature of the process and thus bind both the receiver and the deliverer as closely together in people's minds as possible. And we made the discovery that when Le Prince was altering his language, he used the term my process to explain the singular nature of the invention. And the patent office mistook the letter M in my for AN and actually wrote any process which not only didn't make sense but demonstrated that perhaps the patent officer wasn't paying attention. And after these amendments, the patent office wrote back informing the prince that it now found three of his remaining clauses untenable in the light of three earlier patents and these were by Dumont, Duoron and Mybridge. And we surmised that taken together these rejections were an attempt by the Patent Office to stop Le Prince from claiming too many of the basic principles of motion pictures as his own. So what he needed to do was drill down and specify very specific technologies of his that were unique. And so he did this and in his response to the objections he clarified his claims for example, making sure that his designs for focusing tubes which allowed the camera to alter focus whilst filming and which were already described in the main body of the patent were now mentioned in the claim section at the end of the patent. He also emphasised the fact that his machine was portable and self-contained in order to distinguish it from Edward Mybridge's row of separate cameras. Le Prince, therefore, tightened up his claims but he wasn't out of the woods yet on april the 12th 1887 the patent office gave its reply to le prince's amendments the new claim three of the patent application which described the frame that held the focusing tubes for the lenses was now found to be anticipated by the patent of a Simon Wing. And this was an odd one because Simon Wing's 1868 patent was for a device for multiplying cameras. Still cameras with several lenses in that took a number of photographs at the same time. Now, what seemed to be the overlap was that Wing's patent had compartments for each lens to help stop light bleeding in. And in claim three of Le Prince's patent, he mentions the lens tubes in which the lenses sat and could be lengthened and shortened. And I suppose that the patent office took the idea of a compartment per lens as a similarity. And so Le Prince had to overcome that problem. And he did that by incorporating the idea that these lenses in the tubes worked successively and continuously, which does make them different from wings. Le Prince had mentioned the words successively and continuously in other claims, so he just had to be extra precise and mention them in claim three as well. And so he submitted a new claim three, which was essentially the same clause as before, but with this extra clarification in, 
that specified that the lenses in the tubes worked successively and continuously, which wings didn't. And after he'd done all that, he received notification that his application had been allowed 23rd April in 1887. And that was it. Le Prince had done it. He had his patent application approved. And then, just days later, Le Prince or his lawyers went and did something that almost ruined everything. They submitted a request, filed on May the 2nd, to reinstate an earlier claim that had been rejected. And it seemed to be another small detail. Le Prince wanted to specify that the lenses worked in combination with the shutters. It was a technical finessing to tighten things up, but it caused all sorts of problems because the patent office saw no reason to change their minds about reintroducing old claims and they dug their heels in and now cited Mybridge again as prior art and basically Le Prince was back a step or two, struggling to get his patent passed again. Le Prince's response was to ask for two new claims to be put in. A broad new claim one went, the method of photographing a changing or moving body or object or scenery which consists in successively and continuously photographing the object or scenery at regular intervals also from the same point of view. And the second claim was, a photographic receiver comprising a casing a series of lenses therein, a series of shutters therefore, and connections between the said shutters for successively and continuously operating them at regular intervals, whereby negatives of the same object from the same point of vision may be produced upon a suitable surface. And it was only now, six months after Le Prince first put in his application, that the phrase, same point of view, appeared in any of Le Prince's patent documents. These two new claims appear to be an attempt to summarise the machine and to provide clear blue water between it and Mybridge's design. And the difference comes, I think, in the phrase same point of view, which we eventually decided didn't mean single lens, but single entity, i.e. Le Prince was shooting from a single machine which separated Le Prince's design from Mybridge's long row of separate cameras. The Patent Office repeated its rejection of Claim 1. Claim 2, it seems, passed. So now we have just one claim standing in the way of patent approval, and on 15th of June 1887, Le Prince and his lawyers agreed to remove that claim. And so... I think the conclusion we'd reached was that, from what we've discussed, Le Prince's initial patent application became greatly diminished, but also, in some ways, tightened up and still contained impressive designs and some very useful claims for invention. The shutters, lenses, mechanisms for intermittent movement of the two alternating rolls of film and dynamic focusing of the lenses designed by Le Prince and all of this working in combination as a multi-lens device had been accepted. And so it was a denuded patent that nevertheless retained five claims 
that we've discussed, which covered all the above technologies. And that's five claims according to me. But this was before I noticed the thing that I'd missed, which is the inclusion of two other claims from earlier on in the process. These were an apparatus for producing animated pictures and delivering the same upon suitable surfaces, comprising a photo camera provided with a series of lenses and shutters and a deliverer or stereopticon provided with mechanism for delivering or throwing the pictures obtained by the camera mechanism upon a surface in approximately the same order in which they were received. And the other claim, an apparatus for producing animated pictures comprising a photo camera having the shutter mechanism and removable and interchangeable film box and stereopticon reflector whereby the camera may serve the twofold purpose described. Now, I wondered how I'd lost track of these claims and I even remembered an episode earlier on when we spent some time looking at them because we pointed out that the prince had spent time rewording his patent to make motion pictures sound like something that incorporated the capture and the delivery of films as part of a single process. And we looked at his use of the words twofold purpose, which we decided was Le Prince's attempt at making filming and projecting sound like elements of a single process. And so we'd looked at these claims, and yet I'd lost track of them in subsequent episodes. Why? Well, it's just possible that hearing these two claims read out you might be scratching your head at the idea of a claim for a deliverer after everything that we've discussed so far about discarding those claims for deliverers in order to appease a patent office. And if you are scratching your head, you might be able to appreciate why I think I lost sight of these claims as we went along too. And when I noticed these two extra surviving claims, I was worried that I'd messed up this podcast somewhat and that I'd need to retrospectively add these in. And because you've all been following closely and everything has become so dense, it would be problematic for me to complicate things again. But I think that in losing and refinding these claims, I've accidentally solved the issue of whether the patent office was corrupt or not because there's a reason for getting confused along with my own clumsiness of course and it's that these two claims are not consistent with the patent office's own rulings and the prince's responses to them these two claims include claims for a deliverer the prince's projector there are claims here for the playing back of images. And the reason this threw me is because in previous episodes we've seen the Patent Office saying quite explicitly that they considered any kind of deliverer as a separate invention, separate that is to the camera. And more importantly, we saw Le Prince acceding and agreeing to take out his claims for a deliverer. And I quote, from the patent, 
I do not claim the particular construction of the stereopticon or deliverer in this application as I propose making it the subject of a separate application. And yet, just a few paragraphs later, he actually puts in these two claims for his deliverer. I was surprised by this. It seems a blatant contradiction and it's not the only striking one in the patent document. Last episode we saw the Patent Office reject the idea of Le Prince's camera shooting from the same point of view whilst also seeming to accept another claim where it was shooting from the same point of vision. And if we go back to the beginning of the process you might remember that the original design included what I call the main deliverer which was a camera with added lights run in reverse to play back images but also another device that was attached to all this that consisted of two spinning discs with images around the edges. And we saw that the first things that went to appease the patent office were these spinning discs. All the claims for this spinning disc viewing device, all the descriptions of it, the diagrams for it, were discarded. And yet... If you read the finished patent closely, in the description section where the machine is explained, you do still find this. For subjects requiring fewer pictures and admitting repetition, such as waves, cascades, etc., there are two polygonal discs, figures 9 and 10. And this is, believe it or not, referring to the spinning disc viewer that was taken out of the patent. And I should point out that figures 9 and 10 no longer exist in the final patent. They're not in any of the diagrams. And so this is a portion, a scrap from the original patent application that should have been taken out with the rest and wasn't, and is now just floating around the final text, referring to diagrams that don't exist. So, there are bits of the patent that are brilliant, clear, workable, revolutionary. And there are bits that are a mess. There is a patent for a camera with multiple lenses and two rolls of film that works by shutters going off in quick succession, exposing onto two alternately moving rolls of film, etc., but there's also a patent that says it's not seeking to claim for a deliverer and then claiming for a deliverer just a few paragraphs later. And there's a patent here that contains mentions of a spinning disk device that is not actually properly described. And there's a patent here that refers to diagrams that are just not there. So how did this happen? One basic answer, in my opinion is that whenever the patent office rejected something, Le Prince responded by saying effectively, look, I'm taking this bit out of here, like you said, and the patent office was satisfied with that, but didn't think to look through the whole patent application to see if there were any more references to the same thing elsewhere that also needed to be taken out. So fragments got left in. 
And how did that mistake occur? Well, my answer would be to say, look at the whole process and look at the correspondence between Le Prince's lawyers and the patent office in its entirety. Look at the annotations and the scruffy handwriting and the flurry of amendments squeezed into margins and you will begin to see what might have happened. I've put the entire US file wrapper, all the correspondence, up on my Patreon page, but I'll try and summarise things here. There is a document, the initial patent application, that contains the original text that Le Prince wanted published as a patent. It contains his descriptions of how the machines work and the list of things he wanted to claim for. The patent office then wrote back to Le Prince saying something like, well, you can't have X, Y and Z. And Le Prince's response would be something like, OK, I'd like to amend X and Y. I'd like to add another claim A and take out Z. And all the changes are added to the original document which contains the application. So the patent office crosses out bits of X and Y and adds in handwritten notes the altered text for the amendments and then they add a handwritten A and then they cross out Z etc. And already the document is getting messy. And then because the patent office is still not completely satisfied it lists what objections still stand and the prince responds with more amendments. And these are again added by hand to the original document. And as this continues over the weeks and months, it becomes hard to keep things easy to read and to keep track of. And by now, there are paragraphs that have been crossed out and written over, and these amendments have themselves been amended. And how do you keep track of all that? One thing the Patent Office did to help was to assign a letter to each amendment Le Prince made. So the first thing he changed was given a letter A and so on. And on the original document where the patent office was making its amendments, they would make that first changed and next to it they would write per A and the date of that amendment. And what that is saying is, well I've changed this and if you want to check why I've done that, go back to Le Prince's letter of this date, find the letter A and next to that you'll see him submitting this amendment. And that way, you can kind of see where each amendment has come from. But it's still not easy, and you end up bouncing between the patent document and a series of letters from Le Prince. And to be frank, it would be very easy to lose track of what's happening with it all. And I think that that is exactly what happened on occasion. And I think that that's what happened to me as well. But certainly I think that the patent office missed things. But in trying to understand this, I think that I've realised that many of the theories that have appeared in subsequent years about the Patent Office being cynical and deliberately trying to thwart the Prince are just not true. We've seen that the Patent Examiner misread words and included bits of descriptions of no longer existing diagrams. And I think that while the final patent contains something that is historic and brilliant, it also has a lot of genuine mistakes in. 
And while we're on this point about labelling amendments, you might remember from the first episode in this series, I mentioned a biography of Le Prince that pointed out that the infamous same point of view claim that Le Prince had tried to include in his patent had been crossed out with a mysterious note next to it that read, Erase per Q. And we talked about how the implication there was that there had been a mysterious Mr Q who somehow had seen to it that Le Prince's most important claims were disallowed. And I think that now we can see that this Q was not a person. It was simply one of many similar notes referring readers back to bits of correspondence that were labelled with letters. In other words, one of the most dramatic theories about corruption at the patent office simply does not stand up to scrutiny. I think it is more likely that all of this was down to human errors. And this raises the question for me. If it had ever got to the point where the prince might have considered taking anyone to court for patent infringement, would these inconsistencies in the patent have made things difficult for him? I don't know, and it never came to that anyway. But, however useful the wording of the US patent was or wasn't for Le Prince, it is certainly hugely useful to us, because it has given us a very detailed description of how his machine worked. And it did work. And it was glorious. And now we have cut a path of sorts through this thicket of patent correspondence. We have cleared a way to get back to Europe to see just what the prince would do with this glorious machine. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Shadow Traps. If you'd like to learn more or to support this project in any way, please go to the Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash The Shadow Traps. Thank you very much for listening.